you really finally become an adult when you realize that you're here to serve, not to be served. You're, you know, you're here to give, not to get. Uh, and that life is about generosity, service, and loving relationships, not accumulation of wealth, recognition, and power, and status. Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, and that was today's guest, best-selling author Ken Blanchard. Now, many of you will be familiar with some of his New York Times best-selling books like The One Minute Manager, Situational Leadership, Three Keys to Empowerment, Lead Like Jesus. In all, Ken has written or co-written more than 40 books. Now, if you're not familiar with Dr. Blanchard, you're in for a real treat because Ken is an internationally known expert expert on leadership management and leadership management research. I could go on and on with his bio, but I want to get to the good stuff, the interview. So we'll have a lot more about Ken's bio and what he's got going on right now, his website, in our show notes at eternalleadership.com slash 027. That's eternalleadership.com slash 027. There's also a link embedded in this MP3 if you're listening on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. Here now is our conversation with Ken Blanchard on today's edition of Eternal Leadership. Well, Steve, today on Eternal Leadership, we have Ken Blanchard. Uh, Ken Blanchard is just a hero of mine, and we've never met in person, but Ken, I have read almost every one of your books. And when I got out of the military <laughs> in 1994, my mentor, one of the first things he did is hand me one of your books. And, uh, you know, that's where it started. So just a heartfelt welcome to the show today, Ken. Well, it's just great to be with you all. It's just such an important ministry that you have. Well, thank you so much. And, and, and uh, you and I met through a very good friend of mine, Jeff Spatafora, who's a coach at the Halftime Institute. And uh, he's worked with me uh, uh, over the last year. And uh, what, maybe you could share a little bit about your work with, with Jeff and Halftime and Bob Buford before we dive in. Well, first of all, Bob Buford was very impactful in me coming to the to the Lord. You know, uh, I remember that God put him on a across the aisle for me in a flight down from from Dallas to Mexico City to a young president's organization, you know, International University. And uh, so I was talking to Bob and and uh, went to my wallet to get uh, a card to give him. And amongst the dollar bills was this little booklet that my good friend and co-founder of Lead Like Jesus, Phil Hodges, had given me uh, called The Four Spiritual Laws by Bill Bright. And I don't ever remember putting it in my wallet, but there it was, you know. And so uh, I said to Bob, this must be here for a reason. You know, I, I, can I ask you some questions? He said, well, I'm not a pastor, but I'll do the best I can. So the first law is God has a plan for your life. Jeremiah 29, 11, I could buy that. But the second one was the one that bugged me. It said there were sinners. And I didn't like that for two reasons. You know, first of all, I don't like labels. I don't know if you've ever noticed if you call somebody a sinner, they, they don't say, thanks for sharing. You know, I appreciate your feedback. <laughs> you know, they attack you back. You know, what about you, you know? And then the thing that seemed to be so ridiculous to me was the concept of original sin. How did the baby in a crib bad, you know? And old Buford said, well, Ken, do you think you're as good as God? And I said, obviously not. He said, okay, let's give God a hundred. He said, I'll give Axe Murderers five, and Mother Teresa was alive. And he said, she's a pretty good gal. I'll give her a 95. I said, Blanchard, you're not bad. You're trying to help people. I'll give you a 75 or an 80. So the neat thing about the Lord, he sent Jesus down to 
make up the difference between you and 100. And I went, whoa, that's really, a, what a great way to talk about praise, because if you say to anybody, where are you from 1 to 100, from awful to uh, fabulous, nobody's going to take 100, but if you call them a sinner, they get their back up. And Bob says, don't get too excited, Ken, until I tell you the second part. Some people don't like it, but the axe murderers got the same opportunity as Mother Teresa. It's not about deeds. It's about faith and belief. And so he really was important in my my journey, you know, and uh, then he turned me over to Bill Hybels <laughs> down at this conference, you know, and you get in Hybels' jaws and you're in trouble. So that their tag team was, was, was pretty something, you know. And, but uh, uh, my wife Margie's on Bob's halftime board. Uh, he said, I he said to me, I hope you can, I don't mind if I take the brightest member of your family. <laughs> Margie is amazing. She, she was the president of our company. We have over 300 people in offices in London and Toronto and Singapore. But she now, uh, she stepped down and her brother took over presidency a number of years ago. She's the head of the office of the future. And so she's out studying what's happening at all this. She just is great. So she's on Bob's board. So Margie and I went to Halftime Institute, and it was just great uh, looking at what do we want to do when we grow up. And uh, they give you a coach now, as you know, yeah. as a follow-up, which is fabulous. And so they gave us Jeff Spanifora. <laughs> you know, they said, you guys need the best, you know. They said that because we need the most work, but uh, we've worked with Jeff now for over a year, and he's just fabulous. What have you gotten out of that whole process, Ken? Because you were pretty, I, w- I would call you very mature on that sc- that zero to 100 scale, probably going into that. Well, you know, I, I still think, you know, as you know, the road to hell is paved by good intentions, you know. And uh, so I really wanted to kind of refire myself spiritually and, and become more disciplined about about it in terms of, you know, actually getting some alone time with the Lord to to pray, to do some readings and all. And, you know, I, I, I would do it periodically, but not as disciplined. And through Jeff, I've really gotten disciplined, you know, when I get up in, in the middle of the night, usually between 3.30 and 4 to go to the bathroom, I say, well, this is when I'm supposed to be quiet and spend time with the Lord. And so it's a, been a great discipline. And we just looked at other parts of my life, you know, that I'd like to, to get. You know, if you, if you don't think you you can have some areas for improvement in your life. You lie about other things too. <laughs> well, so. you know, you bring up the concept of refiring. I, in, I don't think that uh, uh, applies just to people that are, you know, toward retirement age. What, what are you sharing with people about this whole concept of refire that, you know, people that are in their thirties and forties and fifties can take to heart? Well, when I was t- turned 65, I was on the phone with Zig Ziglar the old motivation guy, and he invited Margie and I to the 59th anniversary of his 21st birthday. (laughs) And I said, I said, Ziggy, you going to retire? said, there's no mention of it in the Bible except for Jesus, Mary, David, hardly anybody under 80 made an impact. He said, I'm refiring, not retiring. And I thought that was just a wonderful uh, concept and and, uh, started thinking a lot about that. And then I ran into an old friend, Morton Shavitz, who's a... uh, psychologist and been on the faculty of UC San Diego and shared it with him. And so we ended up writing a book, Refire, Don't Retire, Make the Rest of Your Life the Best of Your Life. And 
what we've been trying to do is help people take a look at their life so no matter what their age is, it, is that they keep on growing uh, and getting better. And, and it's interesting, we, we use the four things that really uh, came out of the Bible in the sense that when Jesus lost his parents in the church, uh, when he was like 12 and all, they found him and he said, you know, uh, you know, didn't you know where I would be and all that kind of stuff. But it said he went home with them and grew in wisdom, which is intellect, stature physically, relationship with God spiritually, and relationship with man emotionally relationship. Why? So what we really ask people is, what are you doing to refire in those areas? You know, and you don't have to take them all out at once, but, you know, like emotionally relationship-wise, are you doing the same things with the same people in the same ways? Are you eating lunch at work with the same people? You know, and all, what can you do to get out of your comfort zone and and do some different things and reach out to have some new uh, relations. Intellectually, what are you doing to stimulate your mind? You know, I'm, my nine-year-old grandson's trying to teach me about the computer, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, learn all about technology and all that kind of thing. And then physically, what are you doing uh, there? I ended up uh, writing a book called Fit at Last because I went on a big fitness uh, health kick uh, because I... I'd like to last a little bit longer, you know. <laughs> and uh, so what are you doing, you know, around your exercise and your strength training and balance, flexibility and nutrition and diet and, you know, rest and stuff like that. And then finally, what are you doing to refire spiritually? And so those are areas that all of us can take a look at. And there's a lot of young people who are repeating the same year, year after year, I mean, they, you know, have quit and stayed at jobs. So uh, we're kind of excited about uh, the reaction we're getting to refire, don't retire. Hmm. You know, Ken, what's some of the, you know, as people read that book and they look at areas in their life that they do want to refire and stretch out of their comfort zone, uh, are there some stories or areas that were more impactful for people or some surprises that you got? Well, (laughs) couple of ones that people really get a big kick out of is it's, uh, it's a story, you know, I write parables. And so this couple, you know, uh, got in a rut. If somebody didn't give them a week or so advance notice to invite them to something, you know, they say, well, you know, it's, it's too, too late, uh, you know, and all. And so they finally realized that was stupid, and they started what they call the uh, last-minute uh, gang, you know, which is if somebody calls you in the last minute to do something, unless you're definitely doing something else, say say yes, and people have gotten a kick out of you. <laughs> but we don't have a last-minute gang, you know, so, you know, don't get yourself, you know, in a rut, and, you know, and, and uh, you know, get out of your comfort zone. So people have really got a big uh, big kick out of uh, out of that. And, and, uh, and I think uh, all the areas have, have brought some real interest to, to, to people, people have really been struck by the whole spiritual uh, refiring, you know. And I say it's not necessarily just religious per se, but it's you know, what kind of human being do you want to be? You know, what? Uh, how do you want to be remembered? You know, have you ever thought about writing your own obituary? People kind of raise their eyebrows at that, you know. But it's kind of fascinating because. Uh, uh, I read about Alfred Nobel, his brother died in the turn of the last century, and 
Alfred went to the, get the paper in Stockholm, Sweden, to read his brother's obituary. They got he and his brother mixed up. And uh, Alfred Nobel had been involved in the invention of dynamite. So his whole obituary was about destruction and everything. He was devastated that that's how he'd be remembered. And so he gathered friends and loved ones around him and said, what's the opposite of destruction? They said, peace. So he redesigned his life so he'd be remembered for peace. So how do you want to be remembered, you know? So these are all kind of fun things. You know, that is such a great perspective if you look at, maybe the trajectory your life is on today. If you take some time and reflect and journal on, you know, if that had happened and you were at your funeral, what were they saying about you? And what would you really like them to say about you? Because every day when you wake up, it's a second chance to refire and go rewrite what you're doing with your life, who you're being, your relationship with God to create that future and that outcome uh, that would really, you know, honor the life that God sowed into you. Yes. And, and, you know, my wife says a little more of it, but I've written my own obituary. In fact, I even made a, made a videotape that I'm going to probably have to update for my own funeral. And <laughs> I start off and say, this is the toughest group I've ever worked with. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's going to be fun. I'm kind of excited about what's beyond, but I'm also excited about what's today. Well, you know, I have a question I've, I've just been really looking forward to asking you because, you know, your whole life has been defined about leadership and sowing into others. And you've just become as the, you know, this authority in this whole area. And, you know, where did that passion come from and how did you tap into it to bring that out into your life? Well, my father was a great inspiration uh, to me. Uh, he uh, grew up at West Point and his father was a doctor there. When he graduated from Highland Falls High School, his father said, son, I think you should go away to school. And so he said, if I can't go to West Point, I'll go to Annapolis. And uh, he ended up graduating in 1924. And they didn't need naval officers in 1924. And uh, so they let him out after a senior cruise. And he ended up going to Harvard Business School down on Wall Street. And he was, uh, you know, building up his career. In fact, they, they were considering for a vice presidency of our National City Bank. And uh, he came home in 1940. I was one year old. And said to my mom, well, I quit today. And she said, you did what? She said, I quit. He said, to do what? She said that I uh, rejoined the Navy, you know. She said, you got to be kidding. So what did I tell you? When we got married, if the country got in trouble, I thought I owed it something. And so uh, he went from, uh, you know, potential vice president to a you know, second Louis and then put in a book on Navy Yard. And when the war came... Uh, Looked like he was going to stay after Pearl Harbor because he didn't have any experience, but that wasn't my dad's style. So he called a, an old friend who had stayed in and was big in Buford's in Washington and said, uh, you know, what do you got for an old fart with old, no experience? i got to get in the action. So the guy said, I'll check on a Ted. And so a couple of days later, he called back and said, all I got was for a guy with your experience is a suicide group going into the Marshall Islands, you know? So my dad says, you got your man. They gave him 12 LCI gunboats, and uh, he, uh, 75% of his men were killed or wounded. And so wow. I mean, he was a great inspiration, but uh, that's a long way to get to. When I won president of the seventh grade, I grew up in New Rochelle, New York, and had an interesting background. I went to a 95% Jewish elementary school, and Jewish holidays had put us in one room, and then I merged in junior high with a 95% black school. 
which uh, went to the Supreme Court in 61 to test the neighborhood school, which started busing in, in cities. And, and, uh, but I got elected president because I was a compromise candidate. You know, I was a basketball player and I was bright. And uh, so I came home and I said, Dad, I'm president of seventh grade. You know, he said, congratulations, son. But now that you're president, don't ever use your position. Great leaders are great because people respect and trust them, not because they have power. Uh, and that was the beginning of him uh, mentoring me as, as a leader and saying, you know, Ken, I'd never been done anything without my chiefs and the people that uh, knew the information. He said, if you acted like you were a big deal uh, and knew all the answers, he said, if it was in combat, your people would shoot you before the enemy, you know. <laughs> so uh, he was he was just great. Well, what a meaningful message. So your dad, and I think he was an admiral at the time, is that correct? He, he retired as an admiral, yeah. He actually retired as a captain, but they passed a legislative law. If you uh, got the, the Medal of Honor, the Silver, they would bump you up a rank upon retirement, and he got, this, he got a couple of silver stars, and so, which was pretty amazing. And uh, so... Uh, uh, he they retired him as an admiral, but he was an amazing guy. So, so that when you were in seventh grade, so you were what, 12, 13 years old, your dad modeled to yeah. you servant leadership, which has really defined uh, how you've done things the whole rest of your life. Yes, yeah, he he just was a, just a, as I say, just an amazing inspiration to me. Well, you know, now as you've gone through this whole life, and you know what you're teaching today, Ken, what is your leadership vision for this country and, and the leaders that are listening and that are in this country right now that want to maybe do more and, and refire? Well, I just think that the world is in desperate need of a different leadership role model. You know, we've seen what self-serving leaders have done in every segment of society, whether it be government, to business, education, or military, wherever. And uh, the only... Uh, leadership style that Jesus, uh, you know, uh, you know, promoted for his uh, disciples was servant leadership. You know, uh, after he had healed this young man that the disciples couldn't couldn't heal, uh, you know, they said, you know, Lord, why can't couldn't we do that? You know, and and uh, you know, so little faith. But uh, he he also said to them, you know, the Gentiles lord power over people; they use authority. Not so with you. I mean, I just love that statement, not so with you. And he essentially says, if you want to be first, you need to be last. If you want to lead, you need to follow. Even I have come to serve, not to be served. And so uh, my hope and dream is that someday everywhere, everyone uh, in the world will be impacted by somebody who's a servant leader. And that's not about, you know, the inmates running the prison or trying to please people because... There's two parts of servant leadership. There's vision and direction and goals. That's the leadership part of servant leadership. You've got to have something to serve. Uh, and uh, and then there's the implementation part of, of leadership, which is the servant part, which is how do we live according to the vision and accomplish the goals. Now you've got to turn the pyramid upside down because you work for them. When Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, he was transitioning from vision and direction to implementation because he had a kind of a slow group and it took him a long while for them to understand why he was here. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, he, uh, uh, 
we want to launch their feet. That was the major trans transition. And uh, so uh, it, uh, it's the only way to go, and that's really what my hope and my dream is, and, and that's why everything we're doing is, is in, in relation to teaching people about servant leadership. Ken, you, you mentioned that Jesus hired 12 incompetent people. Uh, have you seen over your years what's better to hire somebody that is qualified for a position that really doesn't necessarily fit the culture or fit somebody that fits the culture but necessarily doesn't qualify for the position? Well, you know, the, the, the companies that I have admired, like Southwest, you know, and, and uh, Chick-fil-A and, and companies like that, they all hire for character and train for skill if they have to have a choice, you know. I mean, you know, Jack Welch talked to me years ago about, you know, it'd be good to have people who are good citizens and also good performers. Uh, but if you uh, got somebody who's a good performer but not a good citizen and uh, they just won't adapt to your vision and your values at all, you've got to, you know, get rid of them. Uh, but if somebody has uh, the right character and values and they're not performing well, well, maybe they're in the wrong position. So you might give them another spot or another chance. We've so, In our company, we've moved some people two, three, maybe even four times before we find the right spot because we want them as part of our culture. Mm. Uh, so uh, I, I think you're looking for both, but if you, if you can't get both, uh, I would lead with, uh, with character and values and, and being a good citizen. You know, Ken, uh, it brings up an interesting point. If you look at some of the costs and just business today as leaders deal with that, it's turnover, it's employees. And the point that you just brought up and the Ken Blanchard companies is really focused on training. So what does effective training look like, especially from this lead like Jesus perspective that um, not only reduces turnover, but just creates people that are really tied into, you know, the leader's vision and direction for the company? Well, you know, t to me, uh, uh, there's four aspects of change. One is knowledge. You know, what, what do you know? Uh, and so in training, you try to teach people some new knowledge about leadership. And then the second one is, uh, is attitude. And attitudes are more difficult to change than knowledge because people can say, I know what you're talking about, but, yes, but. Uh, so you're hoping you change their attitude. And most training, unfortunately, just changes people's knowledge and attitude, but they don't really get at their behavior. And that's why I think one of the powerful things with halftime is the follow-up coaching, because the follow-up coaching is saying, okay, what did you learn at the knowledge level? What attitudes changed? And what do you want to do with that? And uh, let's, let's talk about that journey, because changing behavior is a lot tougher than changing your knowledge, your attitude. You know, for example, you know, I don't know anybody alive today at the knowledge level doesn't know that smoking is not any good for them. Mm -hmm. And most people have a positive attitude towards, you know, giving it up. But try it behaviorally if you've been smoking for a long time. That's really tough. You know, I don't smoke, I eat. You know, I, you know, my mother in many fun ways was almost like a Jewish mother, you know, if you were happy, she fed you. If you were sad, she fed you, you know, and all. And so I can smell a piece of cheesecake a mile away. Uh, <laughs> and, and after and, you've uh, had one serving, she forced you to have a second one just to make sure you were satisfied, right? 
basically is. So it's tough to change behavior. That's why it's so important to get follow-up coaching and all. In my uh, fitted last book, I went through and analyzed where I was in, in you know, six areas of health, aerobic, strength training, balance, flexibility, diet, nutrition, and, you know, and, and uh, sleep and rest. And the only one I was a peak performer in was sleep and rest. Uh, so uh, <laughs> I, I needed somebody to help me, you know. One of the reasons it's interesting why New Year's resolutions don't work is that you announce it, and everybody important in your life uh, says, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it, and then they go to a delegating leadership style. If you could handle a delegating leadership style, it wouldn't be a New Year's resolution. You'd do it, so that's obviously the wrong leadership style. So that's why I think training has to have follow-up and coaching and, and all that kind of thing so that people can really... Uh, behave on their good intentions. So managing the change, it's the knowledge, the attitude, but the really the key with the training, the training that you do is is addressing the behaviors and then really the follow-up is uh, tying that knowledge to changing who you are, how you're doing things uh, yes. in the company. And that really, I you know, I think as a leader uh, – you know, and, you know, leaders are people that have influence other others. But I, I think great leaders also have the ability to manage change, uh, uh, introduce change, uh, which creates yes. the, a different result, a different outcome. And it seems yes. like those are tied closely together. How have you seen that done effectively by some of the people you work with? Well, that gets really to the fourth level of change, which is organizational behavior change, which is now you're talking about managing change, and that's tougher than, you know, changing individuals. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the way it's got to really be done is gets to the two aspects of servant leadership. The first thing you got to do is, is get an agreed-upon, uh, you know, compelling vision, which you know, tells everybody what business you're in, who you are, where you're going, you know, what do you want to accomplish if you do a good job, what's going to guide your journey, which are your values, and then finally, what are the goals? Because you have to have something to serve. And if you're going to make a change, what you have to do is say, here's where we are, here's where I want to go, and here's where you want to go is your vision and your values and and all of that kind of thing. And so, for example, I wrote a book with Colleen Barrett, who was the president of Southwest Airlines. You know, here the whole airline industry has lost money in its history. And they've made money for, you know, 40 straight plus years, you know, and, I, and people say, why? And I go, duh. Well, you know, because everybody that works for Southwest knows what what their vision is. You know, you ask anybody what business are in there, they say, we're in the customer service business, we happen to fly airplanes. If you said to them, well, what's your picture of the future? What are you trying to accomplish? They say, we want to democratize the airways. We want to make sure every American is able to be with a friend and a loved one in a happy time and a sad time. Uh, and then what are the values that guide your journey? Well, they have four that everybody knows. First one is safety because of the business they're in. Then they want everybody every day to engage in warrior spirit, which is if you have a job, do it. Go for it. That's why they can turn a plane around so quickly. So second uh, value every day is a servant's heart. They, that's why they hire for, for character and train for skills. They want 
people who are there to serve rather than be served. And then their last value is a Herb Keller, the founder's value, which is a fun-loving attitude. That's why they love to joke around and fool around. I was, friend was on a plane recently, and the steward got on and said, we're really tired, it's the last flight of the day. Uh, so we don't have the energy to pass out the peanuts and the, and the uh, potato chips. So we're going to put them on the floor up front, and when we take off and get some hype, they'll come flying down the aisle, and you can get your peanuts and all that. <laughs> you know, so everybody's laughing and having a wonderful time. So, uh, and then, of course, they set, set uh, you know, annual goals. And so uh, one of the problems with Washington, which is such a mess because it's a self-serving system, nobody cares about anything but getting reelected uh, because we don't know what business we're in in our country anymore. We don't know what we're trying to accomplish. And we have no agreed-upon values. Everything is relative now, you know. I mean, if freedom of speech was a value, when Dan Cathy, the president of Chick-fil-A, is in a little Alabama radio station, and they say, what do you think of, uh, uh, what is your definition of marriage? And he said, is the biblical, what do they expect? They're not open on Sunday. And all of a sudden, Obama's buddy in Chicago says, you guys can't come to Chicago, and the mayor of Boston says you can't come here. I mean, that's not freedom of speech. If we had freedom of speech, they'd say, Dan, we disagree, but we have a discussion. And so uh, when you have nothing to serve, the only thing you get to serve is yourself. Well, you know, speaking of that, uh, you know, to bring that down maybe to the difference between Southwest and other companies, you know, a lot of many, the goal of a lot of the companies are profits, and people are just interchangeable parts in that quest toward that profit. And that's counter to what you're talking about with lead like Jesus. So how does one take the values and the missions, which a lot of time become a marketing exercise that's put on the wall, but how do you take that so it lives in the hearts and in a thriving, dynamic culture of the company that you're in? Well, I had uh, lunch one time with Max Dupree, who's the legendary chairman of Herman Miller. Uh, if you want to read a fabulous book, read his book called The Soul of a Firm. He's just amazing uh, Christian believer and all. But I said to him, Max, what's your job as chairman of this great company? Because I was chairman of our company at that time. And he said, Ken, I, I got to be like a third grade teacher. I got to say the vision and values over and over and over again until people get it right, right, right. Uh, and I thought, wow, that's really powerful, you know. And, and I, I changed my title at that to I made my. I'm now the chief spiritual officer of our company, and so I leave a morning message for everybody every day uh, with uh, something that I've read or something that I've uh, thought about, uh, and uh, which reinforces our vision and our values. I also tell people who to pray for. We have every faith and non-faith, and nobody minds that I do that. I also, uh, uh, you know, praise people, unsung heroes and all that kind of thing. So uh, it's uh, it's really powerful. So the way you keep on doing it is, it is it make it really part of people's lives, not just something that's on the wall. And uh, as a leader, you got to be like that third-grade teacher that Max talks about. So it sounds like just this, once you create the values in, in the, the mission statement, as a leader, you have to make sure that all of your actions – are in alignment with that, and then you're over-communicating that constantly to everyone around you to let them know this is important to you, and that's what you expect from them, and that builds this culture where you're integrating that 
into how people communicate and do their job and think about uh, their job even outside of just what their role is, right? That warrior spirit that you talked about from Southwest. Yes, no, I mean, you, you nailed it. I mean, that's really what it is. And uh, so uh, you just constantly are, are working uh, on getting that message out uh, and reminding uh, people. So uh, it, it's really key. Well, you know, one of the tenets that you have that you talk about is, you know, effective leadership really starts inside with our hearts. And, you know, the time that we have left, Ken, I'd love for you to just share about um, what is the heart of a true leader and how somebody would recognize what that is so they can, you know, really kind of work on themselves to bring that out into their lives. Well, you know, it's interesting uh, that uh, I wrote a book, the first book I wrote about Jesus and leadership was called Leadership by the Book with Bill Hybels from Willow Creek and, and Phil Hodges. And Bill said, what's your biggest disappointment in your work? And I said, Phil, that more people don't use it. And he said, I think you made the same mistake I did. You've been trying to change people from the outside, you know. And he said, I think effective leadership starts in the inside with your heart. And uh, and I think that's where it really is. you got to go and look in the mirror. And the big question that Jesus wants you to ask, are you here to serve or be served? Uh, and uh, that, that's a really powerful question. And uh, once you uh, answer that, most people, when you, they really ask themselves that, they don't, they, they don't say, gee, I'm here to be served and all. Most people have good thoughts, but now they have to take that into action, you know, and, uh, and how can they, on an ongoing basis, you know, every day remind themselves of, of that in their minds, and then what can they do? <laughs> behaviorally to implement uh, uh, that so that uh, uh, that's where our lead like Jesus always starts with heart and we've developed a 12-step egos anonymous you know because the ego is the <laughs> biggest is the biggest detriment to us being uh, servant leaders you know because we either get false pride where we think we're better than other people we have a more than philosophy and we're trying to promote ourselves or we have uh, fear and self-doubt where we think less of ourselves and we are trying to protect ourselves. And on both of those, you're focused on yourself. And we try to teach people that the, uh, the uh, answer or the way to overcome false pride is humility. And uh, Norman Vincent Peale and I, when we wrote a book years ago, said people with humility don't think less of themselves. They just think about themselves less. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, Jim Collins found humility was one of the two characteristics of his level five leaders. And then the, the uh, anecdote to uh, fear and self-doubt is to trust the unconditional love of God. Uh, uh, somebody who loves to count things in the Bible said that Jesus said 366 times in the Gospels, fear not, you know, one for every day and one for leap uh, year, you know, because, you know, I will never forsake you. I won't leave you alone. So we just have to trust that uh, thing. So, but it, it starts in the inside. Well, you know, and it does. And, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, there's so many leaders that are just A-type personalities. They're just you know, men and women of action. They they love to accomplish and do. And But Christ was somebody. He was out there. He was in the action. He was He was definitely very proactive. So, 
Where's the balance between being a person of action but also being a a, a servant leader? Well, because what I think you got to do is, is my wife Margie always says we need to take a mental helicopter to the ceiling periodically and look down and say, mm, "Isn't that interesting? Look what I'm doing there," you know. And and uh, I think once you know we put people in egos anonymous meetings where they say, "Hi, I'm Ken," you know, everybody says, "Hi, Ken, I'm an egomaniac." And, and then they talk about times of false pride or fear and self-doubt, you know, and we all have those. And if we realize that, then we can start to catch ourselves. And so we've got to really be observers of ourselves during the day and maybe at the end of the day say, how did I do on a 1 to 10 scale uh, and being a servant leader? Where, where did I fall down? And uh, Do I have to go and apologize to anybody uh, and ask for forgiveness or what have you? So it's just constantly being uh, being aware of um, of your impact and and self correcting where possible. You know, it's interesting you say that because that's something Jeff Spadafora has taught me is you know daily habits to create not only just awareness, self awareness, but also through that learning so that each day is a little bit better than the day before, and it's all those small little improvements that add up over time to yield results that are pretty extraordinary, especially when you're, you're bringing God into that conversation every day. Yes, that's for sure. Have you read uh, Jeff's manuscript that he's coming out with, Finally Fulfilled? Yeah. You know, he, sh- he shared with me about, about Finally Fulfilled, about this journey toward just a life of joy and fulfillment, and, and uh, I can't wait to read it. I know when it comes out, it's going to impact I think literally millions of lives. So I'm, I'm really excited for that, for that next step in that book coming out. Yes. I think it's going to be great. And he just sent me a copy. So I'm reading it now. It's, it's great. And it's a good, really good endorsement. Well, you know, Ken, as, as we wrap up with people listening, they're on the drive to work, they're working out they're They've been listening into this conversation. What's a, a final thought you'd like to leave with people? Well, I think my final thought is that you, you really finally become an adult when you realize that you're here to serve, not to be served. You're, you know, you're here to give, not to get. Uh, and that life is about generosity, service, and loving relationships, not accumulation of wealth, recognition, and power, and status. And uh, that's a journey uh, for us to move from, as Bob Buford says, from success to significance, and eventually, I think, to surrender. Uh, when you take that partner in as your as your day to day mentor. Well, that's a that is a very meaningful point, Ken. What mm-hmm. before we wrap up here? Could, what does surrender look like? Well, I think surrender is uh, to really realize that you're not in charge. Uh, that there's somebody that knew you before you were even born and knows where you're headed and and, and needs to be involved in your day to day decision making. And uh, so you're kind of surrendering your, your life to a higher power. And when you really do that, boy, that's the ultimate of getting out of your own way uh, and being willing to serve rather than be served. Well, you know, you talked about how many times uh, God used the words fear not in the New Testament. And it seems like the, the key to unlock a life of living without fear is surrender. Yes, that's... That, that, uh, when you surrender, a lot of people, you know, I remember uh, 
you know, Ted Turner and people like that said, you know, Christians are sissies. And I remember Norman Vincent Peale, <laughs> I met him when he was in the 60s, he said, that's such baloney, you know. He said, the toughest test of self-esteem is to say, God, I can't do it by myself. I mean, to admit that, that uh, you can't do it all by yourself, that takes a pretty uh, solid <laughs> self-esteem uh, uh, to be able to do that. So uh, it's, it's not about sissies. It's, it's about a brave move. I think it is quite a testament with all of Dr. Blanchard's achievements that he is going through the halftime program. Now, if you've never listened to any of our halftime interviews, uh, we've partnered with Halftime Institute and together we are offering a free copy of the classic Bob Buford book, Halftime. Just go to eternalleadership.com slash halftime. That's eternalleadership.com slash halftime. And we'll send you a paperback copy of the book as well as we'll offer you a free hour of halftime coaching eternalleadership.com slash halftime. Now, if you like to learn more about Ken's books, his website, the Blanchard Company's consulting or the Blanchard Company's leadership research, just go to eternalleadership.com slash zero two seven. We'll have all those links and a lot more in our show notes. That's eternalleadership.com slash zero two seven. We'll also have a link embedded in this MP3 if you're listening on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. Special thanks to Justin Jeffrey for his editing and production help on this episode. Next time on Eternal Leadership, we heard from him on a coach's corner. Now we get to hear Stephen McGee's story. I think that we have to have faith, that we have to understand that there's something being worked, that there's something happening. And I just have to have the faith to keep stepping, especially when I don't want to. I think that's true in life. I think that's true in business. It's an interview you won't want to miss. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership.